Hello, I'm Ivan Agnostu. Welcome to the Tales from the End of Times. We are a team of researchers working on crisis of leadership from the mid-third to the 10th century, funded by the Australian Research Council. Today, we discuss the human need to predict the future in times of crisis, as reflected in the Sibylline or Pseudo-Sibylline Oracles, a collection of oracular prophecies whose tradition spans Greco-Roman antiquity and which became very popular in early Christianity. By now, of course, every community on the planet has been shaken to the core by the COVID crisis. But that is not all, since in the past two years we have learned to live in fear of the next environmental catastrophe. Cyclones, earthquakes, bushfires, locusts, you name it, we all have a story to tell. Importantly, in times of crisis, people turn their eyes to their political and religious leaders. Who can forget the Australian Prime Minister instructing us in very plain language on how much toilet paper every household needs? Stop hoarding. I can't be more blunt about it. Stop it. It's not sensible. It's not helpful. And I've got to say, it's been one of the most disappointing things I've seen in Australian behaviour in response to this crisis. My guest for this episode is Peter Edwell, Senior Lecturer at Macquarie University and my co-investigator on the Crisis of Leadership Project. Welcome, Peter. I'm very excited we managed to move from mere talking about this series to actually doing it. Good morning, Eva. Yes, it's great to be here and to be talking about uh, our obsession with the ends of our world and also people's obsessions with the end of their world in antiquity and what became the driving force, if not the raison d'etre, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Of course, as ancient historians, we're very much aware that history is not just a science of observing or recording phenomena, it's the science of understanding how traditions are constructed and by whom, uh, and then, of course, to what ends they're used. So in studying the Sibylline Oracles, we want to uncover, uh, if not who composed them, then who used them and to what ends. Absolutely, Peter. We do know that the Sibyl is mentioned for the first time by the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus, who lived in the early 5th century. He describes her as prophesizing while in the throes of ecstasy. She's speaking with frenzied mouth, is what Heraclitus says. But the Sibyl becomes fascinating for the ancient historian when she starts prophesizing about Alexander the Great, when she predicts the advent of the first Roman emperor Augustus, and when she confirms that, after relentless persecution, the Christians will have their own emperor in the face of Constantine the Great. As soon, of course, as we mentioned ancient oracles, our mind goes to Pythia, the famous oracle of Apollo, who gave prophetic responses from his temple at Delphi, the temple that is often known as the belly button, the omphalos of the ancient Greek world. According to Plutarch, who had served as a priest at the temple of Apollo, Pythia was inspired to, to give her prophetic responses through two vapors she inhaled, probably from a chasm uh, in the ground. Therefore, we have the Sibyl and the uh, Pythia, two frenzied oracles really famous in the ancient world. What is the difference, Peter, would you say, between these two oracles? Well, Pythia is really the most famous oracle uh, from mainland Greece. Uh, and she's the prophetess of Apollo located at Delphi. Uh, and this continued really in many ways to be one of the most important oracles in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, she advises individuals and important public figures on their lives and particularly on their decisions. Every ambitious general visited Pythia to ask for her approval. 
and she always responded with enigmatic phrases that required interpretation. Now, she does prophesize in a state of, of frenzy, like the Sibyl, but Sibyls tended to talk uh, of their own accord at times of crisis when the world order was about to change. So there are some, some differences uh, between the Pythia and the Sibyls. There is also some geographical difference as well. Sibyl yes. is more of an ancient Asia Minor phenomenon, isn't she? That's right. Um, mm-hmm. Asia Minor, I mean the coastal area adjacent to the Aegean Sea now belonging to Turkey. Mm-hmm. That's right, yes, exactly. And the first reference to the Sibyl we have is from Heraclitus, who lived in Ephesus. Uh, Sibyls were known all across ancient Asia Minor, but the most famous of all was the Sibyl uh, of Erythrae, now in the Karaburun Peninsula in western Turkey. And this particular Sibyl, already famous in antiquity, was said to have predicted the victories of Alexander the Great. According to two ancient writers of the Roman period, and this is Strabo and Pausanias, the Sibylline Oracle of Erythrae, and other oracles for that matter, spoke up after a long period of silence when Alexander advanced on his campaign in the late 330s BC. Well, Alexander the Great paved a new era of conquest and uncertainty, throwing the ancient Near East into proper havoc. But culturally, this is a totally exciting time because the Greeks have intensive interface with their eastern neighbours, not as neighbours anymore, but fellow citizens in huge kingdoms, the kingdoms in which the successors of Alexander reigned. This interaction also allowed apocalyptic or eschatological, as we call them, traditions, traditions about the end of the world, to interact and give rise to interesting hybrid types of literature. And indeed, the Sibylline oracles, as we have them, are an uh, an excellent example of of this type of interaction, particularly in a Greco-Jewish context in the Hellenistic, that is the post-Alexander period. Many texts dating to Alexander's era uh, and this period of the Hellenistic era that followed bear evidence of this really fruitful uh, exchange. And Lycophron's Alexandra has many similarities, for example, with the third Sibylline oracle, stories in Flagon of Charles. Uh, one also thinks of the books of Daniel, talking about world leaders and their treatment of the Jews, uh, and the Oracle of the Potter, written, of course, in a Greco-Egyptian context. Of course, the Sibylline oracles were more prophecies than apocalyptic literature, yet the similarities between the two genres are obvious. Importantly, the Sibylline oracles seem influenced by the Second Temple era, around 70 CE, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, in the sense that in that time, Pseudepigrapha became popular. And by pseudepigrapha, I mean that the actual authors, typically anonymous, attributed the oracles to long-dead major historical figures who were presented to have predicted important past events. This was done, of course, so that the audience was more likely to believe what the anonymous authors may want to add for the ills of their own day. But tell us, Pira, surely this tradition was appealing to the Romans too, given that they were the next important power in the Eastern Mediterranean after Alexander and the successors. Absolutely, Eva. And in fact, it's because the Sibyls became so important in the Roman tradition that we have them uh, in to a certain extent in the form that we have them now, uh, and that they then became uh, important later in the Christian, the Christian tradition. And it's really via the Sibyl of Cumae in southern Italy, in the Bay of Naples, a site uh, that uh, you can still visit um, today, uh, that we have some of our earliest indication of how it was the Sibylline oracles became very important in the Roman tradition. And the prophecies of the Sibyl at Cumae were purportedly written down. And this is the first indication that we have of this. Um, And it's because of this that that then a written tradition of the prophecies still survives, albeit it is in a very different form. 
the tradition of writing down started here, but of course it changed and changed and varied and changed. But this is where the written tradition began. Now, there's a legend about a mystical old Etruscan woman who had supposedly collected nine books of the oracles of the Sibyl at Cumae and offered them to the fifth king of Rome, Tarquinius Priscus, who ruled from the latter part of the 7th century BC into the early part of the 6th century BC. Uh, And of course, the Etruscans were very important in Roman foundational mythology. Now, this woman was quite an enterprising person because she asked a huge amount of money of the king for the books. Uh, But when he refused, she burned three of them and asked twice the price for the remaining six fairly enterprising approach. She repeated this, and only when the final three books were left did the king buy them. Now, after this, they were consulted at times of great peril to the Romans and were held by a really interesting group known as the Quindecum Weary Sacris Faciundus. And these were 15 senior men who performed priestly duties and were responsible for guarding the books that were located on the Capitoline, the most important of the hills in Rome. Now, when the Roman Senate wanted to know if the gods were favourable or not to particular policies, usually often associated actually with going to war, it would order the Quindecumweri to consult the books and provide answers. And of course, as a result of this, considerable political power attained to the Quindecumweri as interpreters uh, of the Sibylline oracles. I really like that old woman. Talk about a way to get a better price on dead stock. <laughs> she certainly did well, didn't she? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, absolutely. <laughs> but that first lot of books was burnt in 83 BC. And in fact, the Senate approved the restoration of the oracles, which was going to be based on books now ordered from Asia Minor, like going back to the original place where the oracles came from. Yes, that's right. And this is where we see this really interesting interesting way that, that written forms and written traditions change and develop in antiquity. There are many different ways in which this has an impact then on how we might have the oracles as they come down to us today. And this is another one of those really interesting chapters in how the written form changes and develops. Because here we have this scenario where um, the first lot of the books, uh, as you say, were burned uh, in 83 BC. Um, And as a consequence of that, there was this attempt then to go back to what they might have originally looked like. And the only way to do that was to go back to Asia Minor. But what that meant was then, particularly in the reign of Augustus, the Sibyls took on a particular appearance that really suited Augustus in particular and and all of the programs around Augustus and what Augustus was meant to represent in Roman history. Augustus, who's a very conscientious, um, diligent emulator of Alexander. Yes, he was. One in a long line. You have, of course, uh, Julius Caesar, but mm-hmm. before him, Pompey. He mm-hmm. gets named, uh, you know, as Pompey the Great, yes. to sound like Alexander the Great, of the course. Constantine, even in the fourth century, Constantine the Great. Hang on a minute. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get to We're Constantine getting... <laughs> in the fourth century. Uh, get the leaders now in order. So we have Alexander, and then we move on to the... Uh, moving to uh, Augustus and the beginning of the uh, Roman Empire. Mm, So another time of crisis. Rome has just come out of more than 100 years of civil war, Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of um, anxiety. Uh, People have lost their properties. People have suffered. Many Mm. of them turned on one another. Massacres, lots of murders, families um, divided, lots of upheaval. Augustus presents himself as the answer to all these uh, problems. He's an ideal ruler. He's able to heal the Roman society. Mm -hmm. But, of course, he can always use a little bit of help from the the sibling oracles to to achieve just that. Um, And in 12 BC, when Augustus became the Pontifex Maximus, that is the chief priest 
of the Roman religion, the most powerful of the leaders of the Roman religion. He transferred the books uh, on the Palatine Hill to the Temple of Apollo, which was actually connected to his own residence. Uh, So they came from the Capitoline to the Palatine, where Augustus had his own residence, and were then deposited in the Temple of Apollo that connected to his very residence. And so there's an enormous amount of power attains and attaches to that. And perhaps a kind of way to imply that Augustus himself lives in the temple? Well, that's exactly right. And um, that Augustus, of course, was very keen to harness this tradition of the Chimaean Sibyl for his own ends, um, which was part of what he was doing more broadly with his power. Absolutely. And I think you see that also in the way Virgil uses the tradition of the Cumaean Sibyls mm-hmm. in the Aeneid, uh, the poem, of course, written under the auspices of Augustus that predicts the glory of Rome under his very leadership. That, absolutely right. And the Aeneid, of course, was a, was a, a poem written by Virgil that was meant to point um, uh, directly uh, to the advent of Augustus, to and that Augustus would be a fulfilling, really, in many ways of of the of Roman history. That he was always meant to arrive. He was always meant to be on the horizon, and there would be this great golden age when he did arrive. This, in many ways, is what uh, Aeneas himself is cast as doing. That he's ma- the main hero of the Aeneid, travels to the underworld to get a prophecy, and that prophecy is meant to be linked ultimately to the advent of Augustus. But to go back, Peter, to the books that were kept on the Palatine, they didn't exactly contain prophecies. In fact, they contained uh, detailed instructions for sacred uh, ceremonies. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, there is a parallel tradition that talks about oracular predictions, specifically referring to the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And I have in mind here Livy. Uh, who says that already at the time of Mark Antony, inspired by the trauma of the civil wars, prolonged civil wars, and the end of the Republic, people in the middle of the streets start prophesizing changes, terrible changes uh, ahead. Of course, this kind of tradition continues the interface of uh, Greek apocalyptic uh, literature, now enriched with uh, Jewish narratives, Greeks and Jews interact during the Hellenistic period. But that interface is really, really important for the Christians that await around the corner to take on the leadership of the world, uh, as it were. In that context, for example, you have one of Virgil's poems, one of his shorter poems, the fourth eclogue, interpreted in totally messianic terms, as proto-Christian. Allegedly, it predicts the coming of Christ. And it's no one else that does this reading than Constantine the Great himself. So the first Christian emperor reads pagan literature and sees the advent of Christ in the verses of Virgil. So it's important for us to emphasize here that in the period of Alexander the Great's uh, invasions, uh, in this Hellenistic period that followed, and particularly in this later Roman Republican period, we see these as periods of significant change and upheaval. So it's really no wonder that an oracular tradition like that of the Sibyl became of such great interest. And this became even more so when Augustus himself decided to harness them for his own ends. That was to really show that he was a key figure in history. He would bring a lot of this upheaval to an end. 
And this then was picked up in the later Christian tradition, as we'll see shortly, as part of the Emperor Constantine's leadership program, who similarly is bringing a period of upheaval perhaps to an end. Look, it's it's true. Um, certainly the Sibylline Oracles become really, really important in the Christian tradition, and that is why we currently have two collections of Sibylline Oracles. Uh, the first one comprised eight books, and it was put together in the 5th century CE. Um, the compiler, in fact, introduced the collection by admitting that he decided to gather the oracles and present them as an interdependent continuum. So he's trying to create um, a narrative there. In his prologue, we come across parts of the so-called Tubigen Theosophy, uh, a Byzantine epitome of an appendix to the now lost treatise on true belief, which was written under Emperor Zeno. So you can see that 3rd, 4th, 5th century are utterly important to the consolidation of the uh, Sibylline tradition within the Christian context. That's right. And this, of course, is where we see another chapter in which the Sibylline oracles are, put, are brought together in, a, in another form uh, and translated into the, into the current scenario and the current situation to be relevant to that time frame. Um, and of course, that's the, the first eight books that you're talking about there, Eva. And there's a, then added to that is another collection that was put together after the final conquest of Egypt by the Arabs in the middle of the 7th century CE. Uh, and so we add those to the eight and we have, essentially, we have 15 books uh, in the form now that they've come down to us. They were discovered only at the beginning of the 19th century, thanks to Cardinal Angelo Mai. It does pay an awful lot of times to be a librarian, you know. Um, he was in Milan and Vatican and, you know, just looking, going through those uh, corridors of books, you can come across the most amazing discovery. And can you imagine that? That's a thrilling moment. Absolutely extraordinary. That's right. And th this is then how they eventually have come to us, was by Maya's rediscovery of them. And that's how a lot of texts come down to us from these medieval and, and antique periods. My's collection um, includes uh, books 9 to 15, but for a number of reasons, books 9 and 10 are not included in modern editions. So we even see the tradition changing in more recent times too. The material of books 11 to 14 uh, was this material that had come together very late in the piece in the middle of the 7th century or by the middle of the 7th century. And it thus focuses on the Roman and late antique Byzantine period in very, his very much historical terms, almost in historical chronological terms from books 11 through to 14. And it's very important for us to realise that the collection as we have it now uh, includes a considerable amount of this later edition and thus is strongly reflective of the issues facing Christians and Jews of the late antique period, um, the period that we tend to focus on most in our um, Australian Research Council grant project. It's important here to see how along the um, Sibylline tradition, uh, along the oracular tradition, there is a narrative about leadership. Absolutely, yes. We've seen that Augustus was keen to emulate Alexander. And then later on in the 4th century, when the Christians get to uh, have their own first uh, emperor, uh, Constantine, Constantine himself poses to start with as a Roman emperor emperor. Mm, so he mm. wants to emulate Augustus. It's always about going forward, but always looking backward as if your future was already predicted in the past. That's what the Sibylline oracles fulfill in a sense. Constantine in many ways portrays himself as a traditional emperor. And sometimes this is what you need to do in a period where it looks like there's a lot of a lot of change and a lot of upheaval is you need also to show that there's also a lot of continuity. And that's one of the things that Constantine is really seeking to do. And it's no surprise then that oracles play a huge role 
in Eusebius's biography of Constantine, but also across his many works praising Constantine, uh, Constantine as Christianity's answer to a tyrant that threatened Rome. And remember, that's what Augustus was. Augustus was the answer to a tyrant, Mark Antony, who had threatened Rome. That's very much how it's cast. And that this was something that was always meant to have happened in Roman history. Christianity didn't just come out of nowhere. It actually became a fulfillment in many ways of Roman history, in very much in the figure of Constantine uh, as its leader. Well, remember, um, Maxentius, that is Constantine's mm. uh, opponent, or the That's Mark right. Antony of the 4th century, right. um, yes. if you want, yes. uh, with whom he fought at the famous battle at the Milvian Bridge yes. in uh, 312, mm-hmm. did consult the mm. Sibylline oracles yes, just yes. before the event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, Constantine's edict in 324 uh, to the eastern provinces introduces Sibylline tradition in a powerful uh, manner. So mm-hmm. you have the uh, Daphne Oracle mm-hmm. in 299, which basically is against the pagan... Uh, in fact, it's against Christians being in the Roman army. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. And that Constantine picks that up mm. and tries to, to interpret it and bring mm. it into the new Christian context and tries to say, I am part of the Sibylline tradition. I am an answer to that oracle. Yes, and a legitimate and authentic um, uh, part of the Sibylline tradition in juxtaposition to Maxentius, who's seen as the, the, the last pagan tyrant who's, who's really actually interested in in magic and and those sorts of you know almost magic and witchcraft, um, rather than this this venerable Sibylline tradition that perhaps he'd sought to hijack. It's also quite a lot about piety, mm-hmm. and at this stage we still see how leaders are very much operating in the sphere of the divine. Mm. Yes. We saw that with uh, Augustus, who is uh, a Pontifex uh, Maximus. Uh, we still see it with Constantine. Church and state go hand in hand, which may sound a little bit odd nowadays. However, well until the 18th century, this Mm. is the case. Mm. The oracular responses that appeal to him talk about the beginning of a Christian empire. Now, it's not Apollo, but Mm. it's the Christian Mm. God who gives his blessing to the new leader, who's going to put the Beliar, the Antichrist Mm. that was Nero, to rest and save the world. But perhaps at this point we should discuss some of the oracles to give our listeners a better understanding of exactly how how they worked, what kind of wording they used. Which is the oldest? So the oldest typically is the one that we call Book 3. And uh, it's also the the longest at around 829 verses. It has a strong Judaic character um, and could have been written sometime originally from the second half of the second century BC through to the second half of the first century BC. That's about as precise as we might be able to get. Uh, And of course, after that, it went through some changes and revisions, but this is what people believe its origins or the the period of its composition originally lay was in this uh, second to first century BC context. Uh, And that's because of an an, an internal claim um, that it makes. We have a prediction that God will eventually intervene during the reign of the seventh king of Egypt. And that, of course, the seventh king of Egypt would be the seventh of the Ptolemaic kings of Egypt. Maybe. Uh, the, the, There's been a lot of debate. <laughs> there has been a lot Which of debate. Which is the, the seventh Absolutely. king? Which is the seventh king? Yeah. How do we, and this is the way a lot of the, a lot of the oracular, and we'll see it when we get to some, a couple of readings um, from the third Sibylline oracle, you'll see, you'll get a, a sense of how it flows and how it reads. A lot of it is about trying to, they're, they're, oblique references in many ways to so the seventh king of Egypt and 
and people at the time are meant to know who that is. Um, but okay, okay. Um, let we me, let me read a bit of that so that you know. I'll do the ancient Greek. You do the the English translation, the, the right? Translation. So yes. that um, our listeners know exactly what we're talking about, and sure. you'll see the connection with the uh, fourth uh, eclogue of Virgil yes. that I just mentioned. This yep. this wish uh, for the uh, second golden age. So let me let me do my uh, Erasmic pronunciation, right? So ye gar pagenetera vrotois doseiton ariston karpon apeiresion situ. Oinu kae eleu, autar ap uranothen melitos glukeru poton edu, so on and so forth. Ventreata crodruon carpon kae piona mela, kae voas ectoion arnas egon te chimarus. I'll read a couple of sentences just a little before and after just to give that a little bit of context. But when indeed this fated day also reaches its consummation, and the judgment of immortal God comes upon mortals. A great judgment and dominion will come upon men, for the all-bearing earth will give the most excellent, uh, unlimited, to mortals of grain, wine and oil, and a delightful drink of sweet honey from heaven, trees, fruit of the top branches, and rich flocks and herds and lambs of sheep and kids of goats, and it will break forth sweet fountains of white milk. The cities will be full of good things, and the fields will be rich." Thank you, Peter. That was um, Sibylin Oracle uh, 13. Then you also have book one, my favourite, if, if I may say, uh, especially the, the beginning, lines 1 to 64. Uh, the reason I like it so much is because it's characteristic of how Greek and Christian themes are intertwined. Those verses refer to our fall from paradise. So, as you would expect, it relies on Genesis. But there are clear references to Hesiodic material, so material written by Hesiod in the 7th century BC that talks about the ages of man, a story well embedded in the literary tradition um, of the time. We also see uh, in those first lines themes blended from the Revelation of Peter, an apocryphal Christian text that contains the earliest such description. Book one finishes with the Roman conquest of Judea and the destruction of the temple in 70 CE during the reign of Vespasian. So you can see how the crisis theme is very prominent in it because the temple is no more. It has been destroyed by the Romans. It is the end of the world in inverted commas for the Jews who live in the city. And it's an example, book one, uh, like the others, are an example of how these books are updated as time goes on to reflect some of the more current events. Many scholars believe that the primary material for these books is Jewish, but was then augmented by later Christian authors. And so, for example, lines 1 to 323 of Book 1 are considered Jewish material, but then uh, you can see these lines 137 to 146 that clearly have been interjected at some point um, between 30 and 70 CE. That is to, to update them, as I, as I mentioned before, to bring them up to date with, with current events. Um, and to keep putting things into this broader context. Scholars also observe that these verses are mentioned for the first time in the speech of Constantine the Great with the title Eratio ad Sanctorum Coetum, and this is, of course, the oration to the saints, which was delivered purportedly by Constantine himself in the early decades of the 4th century. Perhaps the whole book was written by Christians in the 3rd century CE, but clearly the scholarly debate is far from over yes. on this topic. I mean, there are mm. so many mm. details that we're still Mm. talking about and are unsure. In the first 60 lines of the poem, we even hear how Sibyl herself 
She, she's talking in the first person, but then in a very Homeric manner, she evokes God to inspire her, uh, give her a true account, um, which kind of plays into how important Sibyl had become at that point. She has almost a connection, a direct connection to the Christian God. We know that uh, Varro names 10 Sibyls, the Persian, the Libyan, so on and so forth, the Egyptian. But later in the Middle Ages, two more Sibyls were added to reflect the 12 apostles. So you see how pagan or should I say Greco-Jewish traditions and the Christian tradition are totally in sync at this point. Mm -hmm. They have gone through a long period of uh, interface and now people feel very comfortable in adopting motives across Mm -hmm. these traditions. We could also mention here Tertullian's uh, view of uh, Sibyl. He thinks that the Sibyl prophecies were more ancient than all pagan learning. They told real events. And those words you have put into the mouths of your Christian prophets, he says. This is about a world that comes to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as we said, the Sibylline oracles offer really a major testament, not only to the anxiety we experience, we perhaps experience in times of uncertainty, but crucially to the importance um, of leadership in such times. And that's one of the key things that we're interested in here uh, when it comes to how we look at the Sibylline oracles from very much from a perspective um, of the 21st century. Absolutely. Peter Edwell, it's been a pleasure. I think. Thank you, Eva. Thank you very much. I think for the first episode we were both fairly nervous, but it all went quite all right. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. And we hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as we did.